0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Got room in your ear for another quality podcast? Check out this one, you know, after today's episode
1: the big questions
2: can i, can I curse yeah, yeah. okay yeah let it all out the hard truths because anything that we're bound to talk about we're bound to sound like idiots idiots discuss the universe we're poorly informed highly opinionated and hold no topic off limits like and subscribe on itunes or listen on your favorite interweb podcast portal idiots
1: discuss the universe
0: We've been getting to know each other pretty well over these past few months, so I don't mind telling you that it was my anniversary recently. I'm pretty good at this wife business, but I can't say that I would ever take over my husband's public office after his death, re-edit his film to launch a genre-defining franchise, or kill an enemy general after the fort my husband was defending was overrun. I'm more of a putting an extra treat in your lunch bag kind of wife. But there are a lot of women in history who would and did all those things and more. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's not uncommon across the world and throughout history for a woman who's been widowed to take over her husband's business. This could be a ranch or a store, even a mine. But what if your late husband earned his bread in the U.S. Congress? Believe it or not, there is a protocol known as Widow's Succession or Widow's Mandate. Widow's Succession used to be the way that women got into Congress, with very few exceptions, explains Debbie Walsh of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. It wasn't a blue moon occurrence. 47 women have taken over their husband's seat, 8 in the Senate and 39 in the House. Neither was this an old-timey practice that had been long forgotten. The system actually peaked in the mid-20th century. There was a period when you could look at all of the women serving in Congress, and the majority had gotten in that way. Widow's succession has declined, but two women are serving in Congress presently because of it. Lois Capps and Doris Matsui, both Democrats from California. Not dissimilar from a queen regent ruling until the heir comes of age, the idea behind the practice was continuity, the notion that the women would complete the work their husbands had begun. For the parties, these women were placeholders, Walsh said. The idea was to get somebody in there and then regroup, and to keep intra-party fights from happening. In most cases, wives govern similarly to their husbands, though there have been notable exceptions, like California's Mary Bono, who was significantly more conservative than her late husband, Sonny. The greatest ideological differences occurred in the 1920s and 30s, when the widows tended to govern more moderately than their husbands had. Let's say, hypothetically, that your husband hadn't died but had instead been incapacitated by a stroke. And, for the sake of argument, let's say he wasn't a congressman, but President of the United States. In October 1919, First Lady Edith Wilson unofficially ran the U.S. government in lieu of the 28th President. In the aftermath of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson suffered a series of medical crises, culminating in a stroke, that permanently paralyzed the left side of his body and blinded his left eye. While he was bedridden for the next two months, only his wife, his physicians, and a few carefully chosen close associates were allowed to see him. The First Lady effectively took over many of the presidential duties, including reviewing various important matters of state. She would not even consider making her husband resign and forsake his dedication to his office. The first move in establishing what she called her stewardship was to mislead the entire nation, from the Cabinet to the press, only permitting an acknowledgment that Woodrow badly needed rest. When individual Cabinet members came to confer with the President, they went no further than the First Lady. If they had policy papers or pending decisions for him to review, edit, or approve, she would first look over the material herself. If she deemed the matter pressing enough, she took the paperwork into her husband's room and closed the door. As bizarre as the scenario seems, officials waited in the hallway. When she came back to them after conferring with the President, Mrs. Wilson turned over their paperwork, now riddled with indecipherable margin notes that she said were the President's verbatim responses transcribed. This is how she described the process. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. Luckily, the nation faced no great crisis for the year and five months of her regency. Those seventeen months weren't without confrontation, though. When she heard that the Secretary of State had convened a cabinet meeting without Wilson's permission, she considered it an act of insubordination, and he was fired. Not all jobs are as nuanced as government official. The pen is mightier than the sword, but I wouldn't take a pen into a panzer battle. During World War II, Maria Oktrabaschia's husband was killed in action. In response, Maria sold all of their belongings to purchase a tank. She wrote to Premier Joseph Stalin the following letter. My husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the deaths of the Soviet people tortured by the fascist barbarians. For this purpose, I've deposited all of my personal savings, 50,000 rubles, to the National Bank in order to build a tank. I kindly ask to name the tank Fighting Girlfriend and that you send me to the front line as the driver of said tank. Stalin wrote back an immediate yes, but the army was skeptical about Maria's abilities to handle a tank. She quickly proved in training that she could drive, shoot, and throw grenades with the best of them. On her first outing, she outmaneuvered the German soldiers, killing around 30 of them and taking out an anti-tank gun. When they shelled her tank, immobilizing Fighting Girlfriend, she got out in the middle of a firefight to repair it. She then got back in and proceeded to kill more Germans. Sadly though, that used up her extraordinary luck. Maria was killed by a mortar round when she got out of the tank in the middle of yet another firefight to fix Fighting Girlfriend. She became the first woman to receive the Hero of the Soviet Union award, and is buried in one of the nation's most sacred cemeteries. Half a world away and four centuries earlier a Mapuche woman named Yanaquillo led her fallen husband's troops into battle. The Mapuche are a tribe native to Chile who like the other tribes of the New World found themselves besieged by Spanish conquistadors. The Mapuche had held the Spanish off for decades thanks to their strong forts One of which was captain by Yanakio's husband, Hupatian. Hupatian was captured by the Spanish, tortured, and killed. The news of his death filled Yanakio with rage, which she focused to lead her people in retaking the fort from the Spanish and gathering an army of thousands. Not merely a tactician or a figurehead, Yanakio was a fierce and skilled warrior, personally defeating in single combat the Spanish commander, whose head she mounted on her spear. The Spanish doubled and redoubled their efforts, bringing all available military might to bear on the Mapuche. Eventually, Yannacchio and her army were forced to abandon their mountain fort and flee into the jungle. This is where Yanakio passes out of history and into legend, but the Mapuche continued their fight. They were able to resist conquest and colonization, until the 1880s. We don't know how old Yannikio was when she took control of her husband's army, but we do know the age of one Mary Patton when she took control of her ailing husband's clipper ship in 1856. She was 19 years old. And did I mention she was also pregnant? Though it was rarely done and often thought to be bad luck to have a woman on board a ship. Mary was allowed to accompany her husband Joshua on his voyages captaining the merchant clipper Neptune's car. She used her time wisely, studying medicine and navigation. Joshua was already unwell when he was forced to order the first mate placed under arrest for dereliction of duty, which left Joshua to do the work of two people. When he could no longer captain the ship, Mary took over for him. She set the course and navigated the vessel. She also nursed Joshua, including shaving his head to reduce his fever. At one point, during rough seas, she had to tie him to his bunk while she carried out the navigator duties. As if that weren't enough for her to deal with, the first mate tried to persuade Mary to release him from the brig, and when that failed, he tried to persuade the rest of the crew to mutiny against her. Mary was able to convince the men to remain loyal to their captain. The journey from New York to San Francisco in the days before the Panama Canal required sailing around South America, and took the Neptune's car 130 days, during which Mary nursed Joshua through a second bout of illness. Once they reached the port, she became an instant celebrity and received a $1,000 bonus from the shipping line for her heroics which would be at least $25,000 today, but I can't say for sure because the inflation calculator I use only goes back to 1910. Mary said that she had performed, quote, only the plain duty of a wife towards a good husband. Where a single ship helped Mary Patton to care for her husband, it took many ships to help Jean de Clisson avenge hers. Born in 1300 to a wealthy and influential noble family in Breton, France, Jeanne was married at age 12 to a man with whom she had two children. After her first husband's death, she married Olivier Ile de Clisson and they had five children together. As their wealth was substantial, Olivier was soon enlisted by a friend to help defend Breton against the forces of an English sympathizer, Jean de Montfort. Sadly, During the Breton War for Succession, as it would be called, Olivier came under suspicion of being a traitor and imminent defector to the English side. Olivier was arrested, tried, and put to death by beheading. News of her husband's death fired great rage in Jeanne de Clisson. Her revenge against French nobility, military, and King Philip VI began with a visit to a fort that her husband had once commanded. The new captain there recognized her and opened the gate. Shen was not alone. Her troops stormed the fort. By the time the Crown sent reinforcements, the fort was burning, the soldiers killed. She sold all of their lands and holdings, raising enough money to create her soon-to-be-infamous Black Fleet. With these ships, she attacked French ships under the cover of the fog in the English Channel. News of this Lioness of Brittany quickly spread across Europe. According to some reports, Jeanne personally decapitated all high-value prisoners with an axe before tossing their bodies into the sea. The Black Fleet was eventually overtaken. Jeanne escaped in a rowboat with her children. Oh, did I forget to mention she had her children with her through all of this? She rowed that boat for five days and five nights until they reached England. Impressed with her power and having no love for France, King Edward III gave her more ships and she set out again. Her quest for revenge continued with the same intensity even after Philip VI of France died in 1350. Finally, in 1356, after 13 years of piracy and for no reason in evidence, Jeanne de Clisson retired and lived the rest of her days in England, tying the knot for a third time.
3: A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed,
1: I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: Tying the knot is one of many idioms and expressions that we use when referring to marriage without ever really thinking about them. If only I had someone to do a deep dive on this etymology for me. Oh wait, I do. My friends Shauna and Dan from the Bunny Trails podcast.
2: Hi Moxie. It's Dan Pugh.
4: And Shauna Harrison from the Bunny Trails Podcast. We thought we'd crash your show with a few facts about a couple of phrases related to your subject today. Dan, what's your first one?
2: Well, first one here is to tie the knot. Basically, to tie the knot's to affect a union between two persons or things, especially meaning to perform the ceremony of marriage. This came about in the 1600s. The first time we see this attested is in 1620 in May's The Air. The happy knot you tie concludes in love's two houses enmity. We also see it shortly thereafter in Shirley's The School of Compliment. That came out in 1631. You mean to tie that knot, nothing but death is able to undo. So this phrase originates with the wedding customs of hand fasting, where the couple has their hands tied together as a symbol of bonding. The early Romans and the uh, Celtics frequently used hand fasting in marriage ceremonies and many Hindu weddings continue the custom today.
4: That's pretty cool. My uh, family has some Celtic uh, origin and uh, my cousin actually had a hand fasting ceremony for her wedding. That's kind of cool. So the first one I want to cover is jumping the broom. Uh, it symbolizes sweeping away the old and welcoming the new. Uh, people actually jump over brooms. As like, <laughs> like
2: literally jump over a broom.
4: <laughs> yes, they, they lay a broom down and jump right over it together. Huh. So uh, the origin of it is, is kind of unclear, but several stories state that it's an African tribal ritual consisting of laying sticks on the ground uh, that represent a couple's new home together. Or that the spray of the broom symbolizes the people and the handle is, represents the Almighty who holds them all together. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the custom has been practiced in Wales since the 1700s, uh, where they actually would lay the broom diagonally in the, the door frame and then the couple would either be, the wife would be carried across over it or they would jump over it together. It, and it's used there now as a kind of a common law marriage symbolic act. Uh, The actual phrase, jumping the broom, was seen for the first time in literature in the 1700s in French and English writings. In 1839, in the Standard of London, it says, when the commissioner said he thought Mr. Taylor was rather advanced in life to think of marrying again, he said, am I indeed? Many women have offered to jump over the broomstick with me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mr. Taylor.
4: Very confident. (laughs) In 2006, in the New York Times, there was an article with a quote that reads, after they exchanged vows, they jumped the broom in the African-American tradition and smashed a glass in the Hebrew tradition. So they were kind of melting their um, their two heritages together. Oh, that's cool. Yeah.
2: So my next one is getting hitched up. Which is a phrase that was originally a nautical term from the 1500s. Oh. It entered the English lexicon referring to marriage in the 1800s. And it evolved from the idiom, it didn't use much today, hitching your horses together, which meant that you got along well. and oh, then It okay. evolved yeah. towards the concept of hitching up or getting hitched up, meaning uh, I'm going to to get along really well, hopefully, for <laughs> life <laughs> with someone. Uh, One example of this is from 1857 by Josiah Holland in The Bay Path, A Tale of New England Colonial Life. And he said, now and then a feller gets hitched to a hedgehog of a wife.
4: Oh, that's very nice. (laughs) 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 What a lovely sentiment.
2: (laughs) Right? Uh, There's another example and one that I admit I'm just going to use so I can say the title of the book. Uh, this is from 1890 in Sidney Buckman's book, John Dark's Sojourn in the Cotswolds and Elsewhere. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they write, of Longevore, we got hitched up together."
4: Ah, I think that requires an accent. Let's see. Let's no, nope,
2: nope. I don't do accents.
4: <laughs> this one's probably my favorite. It's "Take the plunge," and as soon as this phrase appeared in the English language, it. Pretty, was almost immediately associated with marriage <laughs> so <laughs> in 1771 in piazza di orlando uh, very fine truly excellent husband and the reply i have taken a plunge indeed
2: ah so so this is this uh i'm, I'm sure it's used for marriage but is taking the plunge also like the jumping into the Lake of love, I suppose.
4: I suppose so, yeah. And the idea is basically when you've committed to something and there's no going back, uh, that you've taken the plunge. Uh, It's just that it's used so frequently in association with marriage that you can use it now independently and be referring to... Either, you know, having fallen in love or getting married or engaged or something along those lines. So there are some really fun stories about couples who are using use this idiom like now and now uh, for their their wedding theme. Uh, We're taking the plunge and they invite people with them. One couple got married, uh, the wedding party, piano, uh, everybody together on a platform, 160 feet in the air. And then, as soon as the bride and groom were announced, the the couple bungee jumped off of the platform.
2: That seems reckless.
4: Yeah. Uh, so the the wedding party and and all and the guests who were up in the air with them were strapped into their seats. Uh, for safety, I'm not sure I would. I don't know how I'd feel about attending that wedding. So, um, uh, the other one that I thought was really neat, a couple took a submersible that was used for the Hollywood movie Titanic, and they took that down to the actual Titanic site and said their vows underwater. Oh,
2: yeah, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So they took a literal plunge.
4: They they sure did. So <laughs> they they had to do the ceremony on their knees because the craft was too small for for them to stand up. But still, I mean, it's cool. Ah,
2: yeah, well, that's nice. <laughs> Well, if you liked our segment today, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you get your podcasts. It's called Bunny Trails. And if you'd like to say hello, catch us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at BunnyTrailsPod. And of course, you can get links to everything we do by going to BunnyTrailsPod.com.
0: Thanks, Dan and Shauna. I hope my gentle listener is enjoying the guest spots on the show as much as I am. Having guests is almost as good as seeing a new review pop up. This latest one is from Stant 12 and they say, Great job. I just listened to the episode on Secret Cities. Fascinating. I'm from Knoxville, which is near Oak Ridge, and it was neat to hear all of the history behind it. The host has a very smooth and relaxing voice. Nice to listen to before bed to relax. A husband doesn't have to be dead for his wife to jump in and help him. Some of cinema's most iconic movies wouldn't be what they are if not for a spouse in the editing room. Take the work of Alfred Hitchcock, for example. Alma Revel was arguably the only person to whom Hitchcock would defer in the filmmaking process, and usually even then, not easily. Biographer Patrick McGilligan said of Alma, Her final word on editing was THE final word on editing. Having begun her career at age 16, Alma was already an experienced editor and continuity girl, which was a real job title in the movies back then, when she and Alfred met. Their working relationship began when he was made assistant director of the movie Woman to Woman and wanted to hire her to edit. The salary they offered Alma was too low and she literally walked away from the project, only to find Alfred racing down the corridor after her to make her a better offer. They would marry three years later. For the groundbreaking movie Psycho, Hitchcock wanted to have no music in the famous shower scene, that it should only have the sounds of running water and actress Janet Leigh's screams. It was Alma who was able to convince him but the staccato strings of composer Bernard Herrmann were the right choice. She also caught a few frames that had gotten past everyone else and may have undermined the impact of the whole scene. Originally, when Lee was laying supposedly dead in the tub, you could clearly see her swallow. Luckily, Alma noticed it. A bucketful of bonus facts for the shower scene, the blood we see swirling down the drain, was Bosco brand chocolate syrup. The scene was actually fairly tame to shoot and was made much more intense during editing. Janet Lee was so alarmed when she saw it at the initial screening that she never took a shower again if she could avoid it. If she were forced to shower, say there wasn't a tub, she would leave the shower curtain and the bathroom door open so she could watch for someone coming. That's the power of editing. Unbelievably, Hitchcock never won an Oscar for directing. But at age 79, he did receive the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award. When he accepted it, he said I beg to mention by name only four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, encouragement, and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor. The second is a scriptwriter, the third is the mother of my daughter, Pat, and the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen. And their names are Alma Revel. The personal side of things wasn't quite so rosy for Marcia Lucas and her husband George, even though her work in editing Star Wars A New Hope made it the film that launched a media empire. Along with fellow editors Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu, Marsha was the only Lucas to bring home an Oscar in 1978. Like Alma Revel, Marsha was an accomplished film editor in her own right, working under such luminaries as Martin Scorsese. George Lucas's original cut of the film was not the space opera fairy tale that we know and love today. The opening text crawl was really long. The pacing was slogging and slow, the plot was unclear, the first act was bloated with unnecessary backstory, there were jokes where jokes did not belong, and the focus moved between characters in a way that made no sense. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good. Marcia and company rearranged the scenes to create tension where it had been left out, to trim redundant exposition, and to give the audience the right amount of information, not too much and not too little, and just at the right time. George and Marcia Lucas divorced in 1983, just after Return of the Jedi came out, and it seems that he worked to repress her contributions, even putting scenes back in that she had taken out, which is two reasons to hate the remastered versions. You'll definitely want to check out the YouTube video that I linked in the show notes for a quick side-by-side comparison of her version and his. Not every creative appreciates his equally creative wife. Martha Gellhorn was a war correspondent reporting on the Spanish Civil War in 1939 when she fell in love with another correspondent, Ernest Hemingway. The couple moved to Cuba and married Whereupon Hemingway apparently expected Gelhorn to tie on an apron and keep house for him. Gelhorn, however, continued traveling to far-off lands to report on their conflicts. Hemingway eventually resorted to undermining Gelhorn's career by snagging the only press credential her employer had been given to cover the D-Day invasion, not about to be scooped by her own husband. Gelhorn talked her way onto a hospital ship and hid in a bathroom overnight. When she emerged, the invasion was underway. The ship she was on was the first hospital ship to arrive. All hands were desperately needed. Gelhorn fetched food and bandages, water and coffee, and helped interpret where she could. When night fell, she went ashore at Omaha Beach with a handful of doctors and medics, not as a journalist, but as a litter-bearer, flinging herself into the icy surf that brimmed with corpses, following just behind the minesweepers to recover the wounded. She worked tirelessly through the night with blistered hands. She was the only member of the fourth estate to have been near the battle. Hemingway and all the rest watched through binoculars from a safe distance. Still, Hemingway's story received top billing and more attention, but the truth had been written on the sand. There were 160,000 men on that beach, and one woman. Gellhorn and Hemingway divorced less than a year later, and Gellhorn continued covering wars well into her eighties. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Though I'd like to leave you with one amazing story from the other side of the marital aisle. In 1960, Faguni Devi of India fell and was mortally wounded on a treacherous footpath. The nearest medical facility was over 40 miles or 75 kilometers away, owing to the mountainous terrain of the region. For the next 22 years, her husband, Dashrath Manji, armed only with hand tools, dug down through the 300 foot or 90 meter high mountain. The new road he created meant that the trek to the hospital was now only three miles or five kilometers, and is substantially safer than the mountain paths that people used before. The Taj Mahal is beautiful in everything, but the mountain man road is a real testament of love. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode is brought to you by the word